Hi folks, this is Shaq Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 30th, 2013, and this is episode... 1217 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. We usually do a listener feedback show today. We're not going to do that today because I have got just to jam this week to get stuff out for you guys, and it's either the Monday show's getting wiped or the Friday show's getting wiped. It's going to be one or the other. The Friday show's going to have to be done on Wednesday. Um, there probably won't be much listener ad counsel acti- or listener expert counsel activity this week, um, but I know you guys really like to call in show, so I'll I'll knock out a call in show early. I've got to get on a plane Thursday morning, and I'm not coming back until the end of the following week, so I'm out for ten days. So it's going to be rerun city as I put it in the latest member support brigade only video that I just put out this morning. Um, Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, and I've put out over 1,200 episodes, and uh, that means it's time now to use some of that past content. There will be new intros and, and little tidbits in the history segment all added to the new ones, so they won't be complete reruns, but that'll let me knock out a bunch of them quick so that you guys don't go without shows. I'll be cherry-picking the uh, kind of some of the best shows of the past, things that generally I get lots of emails about, and I'm like, we've covered that a lot, and I realize maybe those episodes, especially for newer people, haven't been listened to, so... It should be a, a fun time for TSP. I will not be as interactive with you while I'm gone. Um, I'm there for the Self-Reliance Expo. Once that's over, I am on vacation with my wife, and she hasn't had a vacation with her husband in about two years. We haven't taken, uh, we did not take a vacation last year at all, and I owe her that, so I'm going to do that, and uh, so I'll miss you guys, but... Uh, It's time well spent when you spend time with the people that you love. Anyway, before I get into today's show, which is going to be an interview on beekeeping, and specifically on capturing wild swarms of bees and the advantages of doing that, and it makes a lot of sense, and uh, it also takes us back to the origins of beekeeping in a lot of ways. So this is a great interview with a guy named Jason Burns, uh, who's just a, uh, or Bruns, I'm sorry, I keep calling him Burns. Like Mr. Burns, excellent, right? Uh, but Jason Bruns, and uh, he's really a cool guy. I'll have him on in uh, just a moment. Before I do that, though, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. I'm sure I'll see Jeff at the uh, Self-Reliance Expo. He's just an awesome guy, a maniac when it comes to customer support. And what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems, as crazy as that sounds. He also has a lot of other great prepping gear at Directive21.com, which is his website. Again, Directive, D-I-R-E-C-T-I-V-E, the numbers 2N1, and then a .com. Get on over there and check Jeff out. If you're going to get a Berkey system, and you probably should, don't be the guy that got your Berkey system from the non-Berkey guy when you could have got it from the Berkey guy. Don't be that guy. Next up... Uh, J.M. Bullion. J.M. Bullion was, when I went out and looked for someone that we could uh, bring on as a sponsor in the precious metals world, somebody where you could get American Eagles, uh, generic silver rounds, gold, things like that, I wanted someone trustworthy and large enough to offer great pricing. I also wanted somebody that if something went wrong, I could pick up the phone or send an email and talk to the owner, not to customer service, the owner. And so I talked to people like Monix and Atmex, and they went, yeah, you're not important enough to talk to our owner. 
Okay, fine. Well, you're not important enough to be on the show. So then I found Jan Bullion, who had pricing better than Monix and Atmex. And the owner was like, of course I'll talk to you. I care about my business and my customers. So that's why we added them, and they have done a great job for our audience ever since. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Great source for silver and gold. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about... 13skills.com and the continuing uh, improvements we're seeing over there. I'll have the results of the poll for you later this week on uh, on the best designed uh, web badge uh, for bloggers to use and I'll tell you about a way that you know anybody with a blog now can win uh, a 13 or a, not a 13 a MSB lifetime membership valued at $300. Um, that'll be coming later, but I wanted to tell you today about a new upgrade that David Larson has made to the 13 skills site. Wouldn't it be great if when you were at 13 Skills, you said, hey, I'm uh, setting a goal in, I don't know, knife making. Does anybody know how to? And then that person could help you. Well, you can do that now. When you're in your 13 Skills account and you're setting your goals and setting your timelines, you can ask a question and get help from other members of the community who have experience doing the things that you're trying to learn how to do. Check that one out today, 13skills.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you get some really great stuff like discounts to a ton of, ton of vendors. But I want to tell you about this new feature that Joe and I have worked to put together to add to um, to the Member Support Brigade. We're now doing members-only videos once a week. What are we going to do this week? I don't know. I'll probably record something in Colorado and, and, and throw it up so Joe can uh, to do the rest of the stuff remotely. Um, something at the event, maybe, uh, talking about some of the things. I'll have Dorothy film it. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, It's different. It's, it's something we've never really done before. It's just me kind of relaxed on a weekend, talking about the week before, answering questions that come in from brigade members. This week, for instance, I was having a beer and cooking jalapenos with bacon and cheddar on the grill, and uh, the geese came out again, and we had the geese in there. We answered a bunch of questions. We talked about the guests that will be coming on this week. It was It was pretty cool. And then at the end... Uh, we revealed how we're shooting better video than we have before, and we had a little coded message that some people will immediately get, some people won't get, some people will have to pause it and then figure it out. Um, but it was cool, and I'm enjoying doing these, and we're doing them in a way that makes it special for you guys to support the show. So if you've been considering joining, um, this might be the, the added benefit you needed to... Uh, To, to make the jump. And I think this will help also for you guys. I've been looking to do something without, you know, not taking care of the rest of everybody else. Because this show is about everybody, not just MSB. But you guys are over like in New Zealand and in England and uh, Ireland and we've got a lot of people actually in Holland, um, South America, places like that, Canadians uh, that can't really use a lot of the discounts. And, uh, I would get emails from you guys once in a while, like, you know, it would be great, you know, some of you guys to join it. You're just like, I'm doing it just for you, but I don't get that much out of it because I can't use the discounts. Um, this is something for you guys too that, you know, so get involved and watch. Uh, there's, you know, a lot more of you out there than are watching the videos that are made just for you. So all you have to do is log into your member support brigade account. And when you do, the first page you see when you log in, in giant red bold at the top are the instructions to find and watch the videos. They're on Vimeo. They have a password. If you write that password down somewhere, every time I post one, like I did this morning, it's going to be the same password every single time. 
So there's, you know, you don't have to always log in. But if you do log in, there'll be a link where you can find all the MSB only videos. Right now, there's only two. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of the show today. Um, since it's 1217, we're going to do our little segment on the history. It's kind of bo I almost like maybe we should skip it, but there's some stuff that went on. Um, but what I'm seeing is that in this time frame, most of the information is about Asia and Europe, and that's mainly because there's written history of Asia and Europe. Um, so let's go on with that. Um, remember, there was a war between France and England, and then the barons revolted in England against King John, who's now dead, and resulting in what's known as the First Barons' War, which would tell you it wasn't the only barons' war. But occupying French forces are defeated at the Battle of Lincoln on May 20th by English royal troops led by William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, and survivors are forced to flee south. Now, June 6th, remember, we had a young king. He was like 13 years old, just became king. Because King John died and he inherited the throne. It was King Henry I of Castile. Dies at the age 13 from a fall of a roof tile in Palencia. An event which his regent, Alfonso Nuez de la Ara, attempts to conceal. <laughs> Taken out by a ceiling tile. Uh, Henry's sister, Burgundia, uh, succeeds to the throne. I'm probably saying that... Uh, wrong. Berengaria, Ber Ber Queen Berengaria becomes queen as she succeeds to the throne. Um, you'll find out later in history that she is a very non-ambitious person and um, steps to the side as quickly as possible to allow someone else to lead but stays by their side as an advisor. Uh, probably one of the better monarchs. Uh, in, in England's history, honestly, in some ways, especially after what she was following. Uh, anyway, on August 21st, the First Barons' War in the Battle of Sandwich and the English Channel, English forces destroy the French and uh, the French mercenary. Uh, Eustace the Monk is captured and beheaded. Um, let's see. Ferdinand, who becomes King of Castile on the abdication of his mother, Burgundia. So she immediately basically turned the throne over to her son, as I was saying. First Baron's War in England is ended by the Treaty of Kingston upon Thames. French and Scots are to leave England, and amnesty is granted to the rebels. And then the Treaty of Lambeth is signed, ratifying the Treaty of Kingston. So there is some level of peace between France and England for a time, though this does not completely end all hostilities between France and England. It just ends the First Baron's War. Uh, that's about it for uh, 1217. What you can just see is it's a very war-filled time and a very fast-changing time for people that lead the nation. Uh, who's leading where and when and how. All right, so let's get into the main topic of today's show. As I said, I've got a guy named uh, Jason Bruns on. Uh, Jason's an awesome guy, and he's been keeping bees for quite a while. And he's really keyed in on trapping bees. And he has a lot of great reasons that you would want to do that versus buying, you know, I don't know, teacup bees, right? Your, your pacified, wussy teacup bees that don't sting you, uh, but uh, often just either fly away or die. And uh, I've got some interesting insights on why you might want to trap bees if you really want to be, I guess, you know, kind of a beekeeper uh, in totality as well when we hear some of his reasoning. Anyway, with that, I want to say, hey, Jason, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Hey, um, 
We have you on to talk about catching swarms of bees, which, I mean, a lot of people are like, why would I want to mess around with a giant mob of stinging insects? Um, but, you know, you're a beekeeper, and uh, and th- thank you. You sent me some honey I just got yesterday, by the way. Um, and I'm with you. I think the light honey looks cool, but the wildflower honey you sent me has more flavor. Um, but anyway, um, how did you get into beekeeping? Because it's not something generally people like grow up in a beekeeping family or something like that. Well, I had uh, I had been interested in pollination for several years. Um, have a have a garden and uh, really just interested in that. Wanted to learn about it and began reading about them maybe for a year or two and then got introduced to somebody who had bees and began talking to them, getting more and more interested. But the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, back when my wife was doing her uh, rotations for her master's in education, My da- I, we got a call that my daughter was at school and she had pink eye. And so... My wife, being in these uh, in her uh, rotations, uh, she couldn't leave, and so I had to leave work to drive to pick my daughter up at school. And I walked in, and I could see she had conjunctivitis. It was just irritated eyes, allergies. I know what pink eye looks like. And the nurse told me that I needed to have a proof that I had uh, a prescription for her for allergy medication or she couldn't come to school because this nurse had diagnosed her with pink eye. No, well, hold on. I don't think nurses are allowed to diagnose people. Well, in in my profession, school, I guess you can. I I well, that was one of uh, several things that had us uh, convert to homeschooling our daughter after after that year of school. But anyway, I got to looking at uh, you know the price of this medication and. Um, you know, it was $25 for this medication times 12 months uh, for the co-pays. I, I thought, man, I, I can justify getting bees if feeding my kid local honey can make these allergies in her eyes go away. So I started buying some from this beekeeper. And lo and behold, if, the, if she ate a couple teaspoons of honey every day, her eyes weren't bothering her and she wasn't taking Allegra. Great. So... I decided, hey man, I'm going in. I'm, I'm going to do this thing. So I, I uh, ordered two packages of bees and a whole bunch of beekeeping equipment that was uh, maybe a little more than 300 bucks. But hey, you know, I'll use any excuse to get into a hobby. Sure. And uh, that 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 kind of led you into that. And it's it's interesting you say that because I've heard a lot of people make the local honey claim. So before you just went and bought a bunch of bees, you tested that theory. Well, I did. I'm. I'm uh, constantly, I test everything uh, with everything we do. And uh, with, uh, I, I just, I don't like the idea of throwing a medication at something. Uh, I, I know that I, you know, I can't go out there and promote that local honey gives relief to seasonal allergies. I mean, it, there's government regulations that say I can't do that, but I test sure. it, I'll test it on my kid and <laughs> and report the results. Yeah, and, and report that hey it works for me and uh, yeah. it works for her and she's not taking medications. Yeah, it's sad that you know it's legal to package honey and mix it with things that aren't honey and call it honey. 
uh, and, and that's okay because it's food. But if you say that it does anything healthy whatsoever for somebody, according to the government, it magically transforms into a drug and needs further regulation. Yeah, and you have to be careful what you can say it can do. And it's, it's a shame, but I don't know. I better not talk have about it. Have you ever noticed they never challenge whether or not it actually does it? Right? It's never like, well, does it actually work? No, that's never the issue. It's like you can't say it. Okay. Well, you know, these 17 scientific reports, you know, peer-reviewed studies say that this is what it does. Well, you can cite the reports, but you can't say it. Or, or you can cite the reports, but not 500 years of, of data from people yeah. using it as, as <laughs> you know, for that indication, but whatever. Yeah, so look, look let's move on to what we actually had you on to talk about today, um, which is catching local bees. Um, and your, your kind of lead-off point is that, this makes everything easier, right? This simplifies things. Because, I mean, to me, as I look at bringing bees in here in the spring, I think, well, if I order a package of bees, I just dump them in the hive, and that's pretty simple. So how does, you know, catching local bees simplify my life, especially as a new keeper? Well, I mean, these uh, these bees that, that you buy, I mean, it, beekeeping is more complex than just going and getting some bees and dumping them in a box and then, you got bees. I mean, beekeeping is, is, is animal husbandry. It's different than other types of animal husbandry, but it is a type of animal husbandry. And it, it requires you learning different, different aspects of the bees' behavior and, and being able to read them just like you read your chickens or your, your uh, geese. Or you, you are looking at them and, and trying to discern what they need. Um, Beekeeping today, I don't know if you've been reading about it like what I did when I first decided to get into it, but I was very kind of scared to get into it because of all the problems that I read about. Did I mean are you have you been reading a lot? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean and we you know, I've also done a a beekeeping series last year. I think we had nine different beekeepers on. Right. Uh which gave me an incredible diverse view into the hobby. And and there is the more beekeepers you talk to, the more diverse that view is going to get. But there's one thing that was consistent with everything I read is that it gave me this fear of I'm going to do something wrong and my bees are going to die. Well, <laughs> and and that's I, I mean I I'm on a lot of forums and I read these people and I I mean I understand being upset, but in animal husbandry, animals will die. Correct. And and what I'm doing with uh, those animals that that die, uh, or you know, those bees that die, they provide a uh, a surplus to me, and I'll talk about that with you in a little bit. But in in them dying, they're providing a product for this beekeeping operation. I mean, I got into beekeeping in order to be more self sufficient, and the thing that I see about beekeeping today is that it's kind of consumptive. I mean, you to get into beekeeping, you get a beekeeping catalog. And you go through it, and you say, "I buy this, I buy this, I buy this, and then I have to buy my bees and when you you know you're you're uh, normally talking about you know better in your life if times get hard and if they don't well and if times don't get hard, you can get your bees for free, so you're not shelling out a hundred dollars every year, so that makes my life it simplifies my life as a beekeeper, and then you also are are getting bees that are from your area so they're more likely to survive. So you don't need to do some of the things 
or, or at least I haven't had to do some of the things that other beekeepers do. Uh, some of the other beekeepers you've had on your show, you've talked about, uh, you know, the inspections. And uh, I, I, after listening to your show, I got Mollison's book and, and read it cover to cover one winter. And uh, the thing that I have applied to beekeeping is that, you know, some people have applied the idea that Langstroth's hives, which is what I use, are, are the bees don't like it when you manipulate them. And I totally agree with that. But instead of looking at it as, okay, the bees don't like me being in there, I will devise a new hive that they may not mind me being in there as much. I just look at it as they don't want me in there, so I'm not going to get in there. So when you catch these bees where I'm, I'm targeting feral stock, I'm, I'm putting my traps in places where I know there are no beekeepers. So if there are bees there... They're surviving despite all of the other problems. I live in a very harsh environment. It's a uh, monocrop agricultural soybeans corn area where there's vast expanses of corn and soybeans with little patches of woods. And there are bees living here in great numbers, and they're dealing with nosema, varroa, small hive beetles, all of the problems that all of the rest of the bees are dealing with. And they're not being treated for anything, and they're not being fed, and they're not being visited by beekeepers. Hmm. So I then apply that to my operation, and that's management. That's totally a different. That's a totally different topic. But when you catch these bees, if you can determine they're in your area, it's it defies logic to say they're living here in a in an environment in the world we're living in today and they're not getting any treatments, and nobody's visiting them, it's hard then to say, well, I need to start feeding them. I need to go spend a bunch of money on a bunch of treatments, and I need to do all these manipulations that eat up your time. Uh, because just like you talk on, on your show uh, a lot, you know, if there were a time, say, you lost a job, and you got a five beehives that if you're getting into them five times a week, uh, you're going to have a hard time doing that in less than five or five to eight hours. You lose your job and you have to take a less paying job and you got to work twice as many hours. Those bees are going to suffer. But if, if you have bees that you've caught that are dealing with those things and then you're not afraid to lose a hive of bees because you know you can go out there and freely get another one without shelling out money for it, that that to me is simplification in beekeeping. I don't know. You may disagree, but no, I don't. Actually, I have a, a an almost a, a completely new view of it from a totally ridiculous reason. It'll sound at first, and it's because I just had a falconer uh, on my property with a Harris's hawk, and I was like, what the hell does that have to do with bees? And it's like, give me a second. Um, and he was explaining. I'm like, you know, bees. If you want bees, you just get a box. You, you can get a, you shouldn't do this, but you could honestly just throw a box out there and throw bees in and say, figure it out, bees. And no one will come and say, you can't do that, right? Um, but if you want a falcon or a hawk, there's a whole long list of crap that you have to do to be able to have one. And you have to apprentice and you go to different levels. 
Well, the first hawk that you'll have in train as an apprentice, and you have to apprentice underneath someone who already is, uh, you know, like a third, the third level or master falconer, you have to find someone to sponsor you. You have to go out and you have to actually trap a young hawk under that supervision and train that young hawk. And until you go to like that second level, you can't even buy a hawk or a falcon. And there's a limited list of birds that you're allowed to trap. And they said there's multiple reasons for that, but one of them is to preserve the history of the sport. So obviously in you know medieval times, in, in ancient times, when people discovered the concept of falconry and using birds of prey to hunt, you didn't just like go to Amazon.com and order a Harris's hawk. Right? You had to go out and you had to figure out how do I get one of these birds that's a wild creature to submit to my demands and work with me and not leave as soon as I let it go. So I'm asking this guy, like, well, how long does it take? Because obviously you're not pulling a baby bird out of a nest. You have to trap a bird that's already, it's, you want to find a certain age group, that's, but it's, it's a flight-worthy bird that's already kind of on its own. And he said if you can't do it in three weeks, either you have a bad bird or you're a piss-poor falconer. And, you know, I knew this interview was coming up, and, and I, all, my thought on catching swarms was always, sounds like a good idea, maybe I'll do it someday, maybe I won't, I don't know. It's not really that important to me right now, I just want some bees. But hearing him talk about that, I immediately made this connection over to like, well, if you really want to understand beekeeping as a beekeeper, well, before the world of you know mail order catalogs, this is how you got bees. That's that's right. Bee, man has been keeping. They talk about beekeeping and honey in the Bible. They yeah. The Egyptians kept bees, and and they were able to do it profitably. You know, they they got a surplus. Uh, there, there's a, a lot of beekeepers out there that, that I know why they do it. They think it sounds noble, but they say that I'm getting bees for the bees. I'm not doing it for the honey. And I mean, I, I don't want to annoy them or, or upset them, but what I want them to think about is man 2,000 years ago through using animal husbandry was able to make beekeeping profitable. And we look at all the advancements that we have been able to accomplish, and and now we're going to say that we're not going to make this about the honey. Uh, making beekeeping about the honey helps bees. It doesn't just help humans. It helps bees because you're constantly breeding towards a more productive individual as opposed to keeping these these bees alive through treatments and other things that that we're doing now uh, that, that we don't need to do. And when we remove that fear of losing them, knowing you can catch them, you don't have that anymore. And you can get back to kind of what we were doing years and years ago. I mean, these old, old books, there's tons of old books, Jack, that are on uh, books.google.com about beekeeping. Just, I, I want people to just get out there and read some of those because they talk about it beekeeping in a time before all this and people were keeping bees and they were having failures but they were having successes too well and it does make sense that a bee that was existing without you could continue to exist without you just in a place you've chosen for them and that's really what a swarm capture is because once the bees have a suitable home they're like well we like it here so we're going to stay here it's not captivity the way that something like you know my geese are captive um, if I allowed them to, they would go away and might not come back. 
bees, once they've, you know, unless they've gotten to a point where they're like, we need a new house, they're like, they don't care where their house is as long as it's comfortable and it gives them their needs. That said, there is a concern that some people have that I don't think you do. And that is where I live, there is a significant population at this point now. Now, now it's not just a little bit, but even in the North Texas, a significant population of Africanized bees. And the threat of the African bee is largely overblown for the general population. An African honeybee out and about doing its thing away from its hive is no more aggressive than any honeybee. I, I've lived in, in Panama and Honduras for years. Almost every bee down there was an Africanized bee. They flew all around different places. Never a problem. When you get to the hive point with them, they can go freaking psycho, and they are dangerous. So how does a person in an area like mine who has a concern that I might end up with an Africanized swarm, how do I deal with that? Well, first off, I want to tell anybody anywhere dealing with bees, you need to be careful. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of videos on YouTube, and there's a lot of these documentaries out there where people are walking around without shirts on, dealing with bees, I don't think that's a very good idea. Even if you're not in an Africanized area, you can have bees that, due to even them not being mean, you know, a weather condition can be extremely uh, extremely mean and, and just sting people. Don't, don't do that. Um, people need to, to feel comfortable, and the best way to feel comfortable is to wear protection. And if you live in an Africanized area anyway, from my reading and understanding, you need to do this anyway because your drones that fertilize queens in those areas, are, are, there's a chance they could be Africanized. So there's a chance you could have, even though your queen isn't an, of African um, Africanized descent, she could display... Uh, behavior of those in her offspring through the drones, and over time your hives could be hot. And also in those areas where you're having Africanized bees, Africanized bees are notorious uh, supposedly for taking over European hives that are uh, not doing well. So you're going to be dealing with them anyway, Um, and you're going to have to probably learn what the characteristics of, of those bees are. But there's one small thing about European honeybees versus Africanized honeybees in, in that the cavity size that they look for for a potential nesting site is different. Africanized bees tend to look for a smaller volume size, something around 13 liters. And uh, European bees look for something about, about 35 liters. And, uh, you know, any, as we're going through this, anybody can look this stuff up on Google, and, and they'll, they'll find the same stuff. I try to tell everybody who's beekeeping, the first thing I want to tell, you, tell anybody is don't believe anybody without going and looking it up. Because, buddy, I have heard a lot of stuff in my years of beekeeping here that is just baseless, and it's a, based on a rhyme that gets repeated over and over. So anything I'm saying verify it and test it uh but and and you know question me on it if if it's not something that is accurate but uh anyway moving along they're they're looking for for a cavity size that's different and you're not going to be able to guarantee that you're going to catch only european sized or european honeybees in 
a trap of 35 liters. And I guess if you determine that there's Africanized bees in there, maybe you're going to have to destroy them. I, I hate to do that, but but um, it may have to be done. But if you determine that they're European honeybees, and and you can you know install them into hives, they're going to be good for you. And uh, you know there's a a big push today, Jack, for even if you catch uh, a swarm of bees, the beekeeping industry promotes the uh, the the killing of of any natural queens that you catch, and then buying a queen to get you know different genetics in there. I I mean they they uh, you know promote docility in in the bees and and having them not be mean as a yeah. reason to re, to requeen and to me I see that as a as a huge loss. Some of my bees I will admit they're mean. Some beekeepers may destroy them, but when I can only visit a hive site that I put these bees in three to five times a year and 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 not have to to go there all the time it makes it easier for me to suit up and go in when uh, in the times that I do and uh not all the times will they be mean and and not all the times is it their fault uh people need to understand bees sometimes will act mean due to conditions that you don't even understand a distant thunderclap that you don't even hear they will hear it on a hot balmy day and that might make them go from the most docile hive to very wicked bees in just a matter of a couple of seconds. So we need to be careful with that. But as far as uh, the difference between Africanized bees and, and European bees, you just have to get that different size in the, in the trap that you're building. Gotcha, gotcha. So... Um you're saying, then, just so I understand you, that by allowing bees to be more of their natural self, which is more aggressive than some of the swarms being bred today for ease of keeping, uh, they're better able to defend their own hive, not just better able to survive. Is, is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's maybe a hypothesis. I don't know what it's saying. I, all I know is that uh, I, I believe bees, bees form races. Uh, you know, you hear, have you heard about Italian bees uh, in your reading about bees versus yeah. uh, Caucasian bees or versus Russian bees? Bees will form races. And basically, uh, those, they actually have gotten to the point where they physiologically look a little bit different, but they're still, their genetic code is still Apis mellifera. And that has happened because they, over, over years and years, like Italian bees, Italian bees are notorious for having a large cluster size, and which means they have a lot of bees going into winter. And then in the spring, they have massive explosive buildup. Well, here in Indiana, uh, a lot of people who have Italian bees have to feed them because I, I, I've never been to Italy in the spring, but I would assume uh, because Italian bees display this behavior that once the bloom starts there the chance of a frost coming is gone because they will italian bees will expand without bound and if there is a frost that queen is laying so many eggs that they will then go through any stores they had left and basically starve the hive out and that 
that hive will die. And that's why a lot of people who have Italian bees feed Italian bees. Now, like in my area, um, uh, Caucasian bees, which come from the Caucasus Mountain region of wherever the heck that is, um, they build up slower, so they do better in Indiana. Uh, because in Indiana, we might have really good, nice weather uh, through March. And then in the first second week of April, we get a frost. And if you've got Italian bees and they're really uh, booming with what that queen's doing because they think there's never going to be a problem coming in the future, they're going to die. Uh, these Caucasian bees are less likely to do that. If you have bees that are out there living in the trees that through um, now where where I live Jack uh, there has not been a lot of people keeping bees for probably the last 25 or 30 years I can remember uh, being a kid on the school bus and seeing seeing beehives around in certain locations but those are gone now and these bees that I'm catching I'm I'm finding them in locations close to those areas so they're bees that made it out years and years and years ago. And so a lot of this natural selection, you know, the way that the spring is in Italy, now they've only had 25 years to be breeding naturally here, but bees that build up too quickly, those genetic lines are gone. Bees that don't store enough honey over the winter, those genetic lines are gone. The bees that survive here, they're still here. So they're suited and kind of uh, fit to this niche in this in this little region of Indiana where I live. So they that uh, helps to. I don't know. I've gotten off there on a, <laughs> on a tangent. I'm sorry. That's what happens with beekeeping with me, Jack. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I, I think we're we're still on page. I just think that you're you're demonstrating how much time and thought you've put into this and now uh, the background that you have with it. Um, but I, I think we've kind of worked out why it makes sense to have locally sourced bees uh, over, you know, bee packages. Uh, not that everybody's going to do it, but why you would want to. But now I've got to get it done. So what I've heard is trapping a swarm. And if you want me to trap a coyote or a fox or something like that, or an otter or a beaver, I can do that for you. I know how to trap them. What the hell is a swarm trap, and uh, how, do we, how do we build that? How do we make this work? Well, you can do it with any type of hive that you, that you want to do. You want to do top bar, you want to do ware, you want to do langstroth, anything you want. What you're looking for is a 35-liter box that you can uh, put put some frames in so that basically what frames give you jack is that you can take this trap move the bees into another uh vessel and then get that trap back up to catch more bees so um what you need to do is as a uh, you know it's a simple it's a simple uh volumetric you know take surface area of of your box and then multiply by height of what the inside area would be get to 35 liters and build that box myself i use langstroth boxes i know i know a lot of people uh poo poo langstroth and they 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 uh really talk down about what he he did and 
I feel that that's really sad that they do that. But one thing that's really nice about Langstroth boxes is that as you're a beekeeper, you're going to have these deep boxes that our brood boxes are typically in. And when they get bad, you don't want to use them on bees anymore. And what I use is one deep Langstroth brood box. And that has a volume of right around 35 liters. L- l- hold on. I just want to make sure that we're everybody's understanding you. What do you mean by it's bad? Is it just not suitable for housing anymore because it's old and deteriorated? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. What, what makes? I'm sorry. Why, is it, why has it gone from it's a brood box to it's a bad brood box? Well, um, typically the corners where you where you take the the boxes apart uh, from putting your hive tool in there and prying the wear uh, from doing that for a couple of years will wear the corners out. And I don't know some beekeepers that I have seen that keep bees around me. They don't care about that too much, but to me, uh, when my boxes get to where they're not bee tight in the corners, I I wouldn't want to deal with that in my life. So I figure the bees don't wouldn't want to have to okay. deal with an extra entrance. So, those so you can boxes, go back to what you were saying. It's just basically saying mechanically, it's 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 now no longer sound. Right. It's uh, it has uh, gotten to the point where. Most of your old-time beekeepers are going to have them sitting in a barn someplace because they won't throw anything away, but they've got them still. So it's just a old Langstroth box, and it's bad for beekeeping, but it's awesome for a swarm trap, and it kind of moves into uh, repurposing something that is otherwise garbage into something that's going to make you uh, a, a profit or a yield. Okay. So it sounds to me then like what we're actually doing is saying bees naturally behave a certain way. And sooner or later, in any area where bees exist, there will be bees that will be flying around going, we need a new home. And just like if I'm constructing a box for birds to nest in, and I want wood ducks to use it, I'll put a certain dimension out and a certain size hole and put it in a certain area It'll attract wood ducks over other birds, or I can do that with bluebirds. I can do that with with uh, purple martins. It's the same theory. I'm going to put out this idealized place for the bees, so that when they're behaving like bees do, they'll go, "Oh, that's a house." Um, but how do bees find, you know, the quote unquote trap? I mean, is it just luck of the draw, or do you do anything to, you know, is there a location thing? Is there a bait thing? Is there anything you can do to make it more likely? that the bees will find it to even know that it's there. Well, it is location, but, uh, pretty, I mean, mainly I bait them. Yeah, you know, uh, I use, uh, as we were saying before, the, the product that I get from dead hives, and I count on hives dying every year to provide this for me because if I don't have this, I cannot replace, you know, I can't grow my operation that I'm doing here. But... Uh, old brood comb is is a, a very valuable thing. It's very attractive to bees. Um, if you ever go to capture a swarm and you and they're on a on a building or something that you can't shake the bees into, if you just have a couple pieces of old brood comb and you lay them up against that, those bees naturally come to that. So I, out of all those old dead hives. I save the really nice straight brood combs, and all of the swarm traps are baited with one of those. 
And then I also use something called lemongrass oil. Okay, and, I've and, heard of that. And and they, you know, they make these lures that are like three or four dollars a piece that you can buy in your you know consumption catalog. That uh, if you buy one, and like I did to see what it smells like, smells like lemongrass oil. But each of those are three or four bucks, and I can buy a pint of lemongrass oil for uh, like eighteen dollars. And I'll be able to use that in, you know, 100 or 200 traps. Uh, so those smells, um, basically what I'm trying to do with these boxes, Jack, is to imitate a dead out in a tree. I have found over the last couple years that once bees get in a tree, in a, in a location, even if they die in the early spring in that location, I've put swarm traps within 20 feet of, of a lot of trees that, that die out, just trying to test and see if they'll come to my box or that tree, and they never come to the box. They always go to the tree. I've had them hit the boxes, think they were going to go there, but they always go to the trees. So that's what I'm trying to mimic is a, is a dead-out tree and uh, I don't know what the lemongrass oil or those lures has to do with anything. All I know is that they will bring scout bees in to to check it out. Okay. Um, and that makes sense, too. I mean, the first thing I think of is we need a big log with a hole in it that we can have, <laughs> you know, uh, is, is the optimum trap then. But, uh, you know... Obviously, then that's probably not a great place for you to, to to set traps. It's probably not a good location. If you know there's a optimum place that they would prefer, they're not going to pick your trap. So it, that would be like maybe a place you wouldn't set a trap. Are there places where you know how do you identify like a good place? Like this is a place to do this. Well, you know, I have uh, I have been struggling with that because. Um, you know, before I did this, in a life before marriage and kids, I used to do a lot of fishing. And swarm trapping, to me, just, it keeps on coming up that it, it's like fishing and that there's a pattern. And the pattern, when you go to different fishing scenarios, is different uh, all the time. Where I live, man, it is, in the Midwest, it is easy to find bees because bees are living in the only places they can be uninterrupted drainages where you have trees that are getting to the size where a suitable cavity size can be for them to be living in the trees. You find that, you know bees are going to be there. Any rivers, any river or whatever. Now, I sent bees, or I'm sorry, I didn't send bees. I sent traps to uh, Jason Akers from the uh, oh, the self-sufficient gardener and then a uh, a woman that reads my beekeeping blog and Neither one of them had success. And I don't know if it's that uh, the area that they put them in or that, um, you know, maybe there aren't bees in, in those locations and it's not as easy as I, I think it is. But uh, in any location, you're going to have bees in different, uh, filling different niches. And, and I tell you, um, just like today, uh, I went and got gas this morning. I happened to look over, and there are honeybees in the trash at the gas station in a uh, in a pot bottle. So you know there's bees in that location. So 
I mean, basically, making observations on where you see bees is a, is a good place to find bees. But uh, other than that, it's like patterning. You, where I live, it's, it's the way that I find it. Where you live, you're going to have to probably buy, uh, you know, build five or six traps, figure out where you're catching them, and then repeat, just like you would do when you're fishing. Now, I've had a couple people tell me what they have done just like on a whim to see if it would work, is set up a new hive, bait it, let it sit right where they want it, and every once in a while it just works out, and the bees that are in your area just come in, and how much better could it be than that? Is that really the exception, though? No, that is not an exception at all. I've had that happen. I I mean, heck, here where I live, I, I always put, any time I have, uh, a hive site. I've, I think I've got eight or nine hi- different hive sites. All of them in the spring have a, a swarm trap sitting on them, right where the hive would be, in the event that they would they would uh, you know, swarm and want to settle in there. Now I will tell you, uh, it's been my observation, and I can't say that this is everywhere because other people have told me different things. Where I live, if you have bees. Uh, in a tree, or, or say you have a, a very strong swarm in an area, a, uh, a swarm of bees won't, won't come there. I, uh, I, in fact, I've, I've found this out by having bees in locations uh, the first year. So I bring in swarms, and I'm catching swarms in that area with swarm traps. The, the following year, when those... Uh, the bees that I brought there the previous year have built up and are, and are occupying three deeps, and I've got four to six supers on them, and they are absolute boomer hives. I can't catch swarms there. So hmm. there's different things that can change. That might be the right. bees like kind of um, moderating their own population in an area. I tell people all the time, Jack, that I think bees are smarter than people. Well, I think maybe they're behaving like people. Like, So let's say I'm looking to build a house. And we're back in the pioneer days now, and uh, and it's like you know one of these things where you just go out and stake a claim to a piece of land and build your your, your homestead. It, I'm not gonna if there's like ten people like really close to each other, I'm gonna get a bit away from them so I have some room, you know, so I have some resources too. I don't maybe you know bees don't cooperate inter hive the way that we do inter household, but I might want some people around that are close enough to share some resources and all. But in the end, I want my own space. I want some elbow room. And it sounds like to me like the bees eventually say, okay, well, if there's three big hives of bees living over there, then I'm going to go over here. And that's, that's what I have seen in, in my trapping. Any time I know where there is a, a tree, because now I've gotten to the point where I go out looking for trees on real humid evenings in the summertime when they're trying to cool the nest. You can, they get very loud, and you can walk through the woods, and you can find them. So you find them in places that you think that they were, and and then you deploy a trap there, uh, you know, a, a mile uh, to a mile and a half away, and odds are really good you're going to catch some bees there. Now, say you're not a beekeeper yet, and man, that's that's one thing that I always used to listen to different beekeeping things, and they they would talk about different different aspects of beekeeping that didn't apply to me yet. But if you're a, a potential beekeeper and you don't know that there's bees in your area you can figure it out i mean if you live in an area where there's a frost after the first frost if there's a balmy day uh, that it gets up to 65 or 70 
degrees, you take some hopefully local honey and just put it on a plate outside your house and put it uh, put it just a line across there, not a whole lot. Within an hour, there should be bees coming to check that out if there's bees around there. And, I mean, they keep a low profile unless you, you know, put out an advertisement like that. And you can catch them anywhere. Very interesting. So, um, uh, let's say you've you've caught that swarm. What do we do with it now? I guess we just install it into a hive. I mean, when you buy uh, bees, usually you get the queen. She's in her little cage. She's got a little piece of candy, that type of thing going on. Now I've got like this mass of stinging insects. Somewhere in there's probably the queen. What, what do I do with this box of bees? Well, the first thing you do is you just watch them. Uh, you do not want to move these bees that are that have occupied a, a trap until you see the bees carrying pollen in on their legs. Once you know that has happened, you know that queen is in there and she's laying, and there are uh, brood that she is or that that the workers are feeding, and they need the protein, they need the pollen to feed them. Prior to that. Uh, the first couple years I started doing this, Jack, I'd get all excited, think I caught some bees, and um, I would get a box moved and opened up, and uh, there was some strange behavior where all they were were scouting bees, and I had them stay in there overnight before. I've had them come and hit the trap and leave. So the first thing you need to do is make sure they're bringing pollen in, and and that way you know you have a catch and not just a hit, kind of similar to fishing again. But then uh, after, after uh, you, you need to, to wait until they're bringing the pollen because early in the season you will catch queens that are from the previous year. They're, they're queens that laid the previous fall, and the first swarms that come out will be those old queens. Well, after that, if the if the hive swarms again, there's a potential that they could send out a virgin queen. And that queen would need to then go out and find drones in your area, mate with them, and then begin laying after a period of time. And that won't start happening. Uh, and, you, you know, she hasn't made it to that point until pollen is coming in. So at, at that point, once you know you have that, then you can move these bees to wherever you're where, wherever they're uh, going to live from now on, to, to the hive site is what I call it. Um, so, so what you do is uh, you go to these bees, and, and you always want to move bees at night. I don't move my bees a lot, but you move them at night because all of the colony is there. If you move okay. them in the middle of the day, you're going to lose a couple thousand foragers because they're going to be out doing what bees do. So you go to your trap, and... I always take a spray bottle, and in the summertime during swarm time, it's, it's oftentimes hot, and a lot of times those bees will want to be outside, but all you got to do is take that spray bottle and spray the outside of the hive. They'll, they don't like being having water fall on them, so they'll all walk inside, and then uh, if you look on my website, I, I describe how to put a lid on these boxes, and you close the lid, and then you take that, that lid, or you take that box down, and immediately put another box up right there. Uh, just before you even think about leaving, put another one up. Because because you caught bees in that area, there's a chance that another swarm is going to come soon. 
But then after you you take them down, you uh, I move them in my car, and I move them to their new location. And I do this all at night. Uh, typically, I get off work one night a week uh, at 9 o'clock. So normally through the summer, that's my B-moving night. And then what I'll do is move them to the new location and open the door. And then what you do is come back the next day that is a good beekeeping day that you're off work or whatever you do, and then you transfer them into a hive. And it's easy as, as can be. If, if I mean, if you plan ahead and you use either Langstroth or a top bar hive, the transition is easy. It's very stress-free on the bees. Gotcha. It makes sense. So basically, you do pretty much the same thing. You just have to think about the time that you move them. Yep, you do. And um, like like I say, you got to be careful because during that time of year, it is hot. And bees, if you're moving them and manipulating them, they will heat up. So you want to be as gentle as, as you can possibly be and uh, and when you're moving them and not excite them. But, yeah, you're just installing them into a, a different a different enclosure, uh, which is kind of similar to getting a nuke or, or, you know, a package of bees. Gotcha. So, I mean, I think this makes sense in a lot of ways, but I think there's going to be some people, like you mentioned, like if Jason Akers couldn't catch bees, it's probably not due to incompetence. He's a pretty switched-on guy. Uh, maybe he just didn't have enough feral bees in his area or something like that at the wrong time of year. And uh, Some people are just like, I really don't want to do this. I want I want the plastic, you know, volume and, you know, taking bee that that's nice and gentle. If somebody's going to get out of buying bees just to get it done or for any other reason, what do you think they should do then? I mean, do you have a place you would recommend or a specific place you'd say not to buy bees? Well, to me, it's it's kind of crazy to buy bees from these catalog places. I if I were going to buy them, I would try to find somebody you know, about like you do with food, you know, find somebody local. Find somebody that is raising bees in your area. Man, if you can find a treatment-free person that's raising bees in your area, jeez, uh, you, you've got something there. Now, I've seen swarm traps that, are, you know, I've seen them on eBay where people sell them on there. Uh, I've seen swarm traps that are in these catalogs that require you to cut the comb out and then put them into frames. You can go that route, too, but I would try to, to get them from somebody local to you and buy nukes as opposed to, uh, as opposed to getting uh, you know, a package of bees. That there's can you explain to folks? I mean, I know from all my research, but there's going to be people who go, what's a nuke? Oh, okay. A nuke is basically a, uh, a group of, uh, say, four or five frames of bees that has a laying queen, and there's brood in the frames, and there's honey there and pollen. It's kind of like a miniature hive, and that's one way of purchasing bees, uh, you know, is a nuke. A nucleus hive is, is it's Correct. for that. But it's, so that actually simplifies things a lot, because instead of trying to get everybody to get along, they're already getting along. I'm just basically installing them into an ex- a new hive. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, there, you know, if you can do that in your area and you don't have the time, but I'm telling you, to me, uh, that's really when I got interested in, in keeping bees. When, when I, at my house here, saw the first swarm of bees come in, I had these 
15 traps built, and I was getting ready to leave my house to go hang them up, and I hear this swarm approaching and coming in. Uh, it totally changed everything I, I thought about beekeeping and, and totally changed the way I looked at beekeeping. So it, it can... Uh, it, I, I don't know. I mean, everybody's busy out there, but yeah. if you can do this... It is so simple, Jack, and you it's it's very gratifying when you do catch a catch a hive of bees all by yourself. I think it's probably one of those things that sounds harder than it is until you do it and then it's like, well gee, that was easy. There's a lot of things that you know I've done with that, especially animal husbandry. You know, you're worried you're gonna kill something, you're worried you're gonna mess something up, you and you just get the animal and then you start dealing with it and you might have a loss or two, but that's part of keeping animals. They don't all live. Um, and like you're saying, you're repurposing the ones that do die and bees die all the time. Uh, it's not like you've, you know, slaughtered a greater condor or something like that. If a, if a, if a hive happens to die or in many instances with hives, it's not that they die, they leave. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're dead. It just means they've decided to go somewhere else and they're going to do it from time to time. But I think the self-sufficiency aspect there has to be really, really high, um, have you done that from day one? Have you ever purchased a swarm? Uh, I the very first year I bought two packages of bees okay. and I bought uh, two established hives and uh, within two years all those were dead. Oh uh, wow! Now um, you know when I first got into this I had a mentor and I think it's very important to have a mentor. But my wife describes my mentor as a burned out beekeeper. Because he had been doing this, this you know, feed them, treat them, requeen, try to get your honey out, and and replace, 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 and had done that for so many years. He just he was exhausted from it, and I believe that that's a lot of the reason why he got out of bees, was because what he was doing was not self-sustaining. It was it was something that. I, I don't know. It, it was he was he was always chasing something, and I I actually when I first began, Jack, I bought uh, some different treatments for. Uh, let's see, I bought treatments for uh, varroa, and I bought some treatments for small hive beetles, and I never ever ever used them. I couldn't see using that on hives that I was going to feed my family with. Sure. And then also, now that I've gotten, I mean, man, I started out, I was going to get two hives, and then I've started catching these things. You know, you, you put out 15 swarm traps, and you catch 14 hives of bees the first year. That's kind of explosive growth. So I'm, I am having a lot of honey now, and I'm selling it to people. And to me, I have a hard time um, wanting to sell a product to people that, I know would have chemicals in it that I wouldn't feed to my family. And a lot of people are feeding or, you know, are treating bees. And, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to eat that. And there's, they say that they're, the stuff is safe, but I know my, my honey is safe because those products have never been in there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, Hey man, I appreciate you being with us today. And, uh, 
If there's someone out there that's thinking about doing this, thinking about keeping bees, and they're just holding back because of some level of apprehension or fear, what would be your final final thoughts to kind of knock them off the fence and, and turn them on to what's an amazing hobby to be involved with? Well, I would tell them there is nothing to be afraid of in beekeeping, and that what what you need to do is do a lot of observation and looking at what the bees, how they act and what they act like they need, when they act like they're happy, you find all these things out just like you do in your garden when you see blossom in rot on a tomato. That garden is telling you this area is deficient in calcium. Your bees will find different ways of communicating that to you. It just takes time, and as a new beekeeper, you're going to have losses, but you don't need to view that as something as a tragedy. It's something that you can get over, and it's something that you can get over without huge expense. And I say go for it. And if you have any problems, ask me questions. Uh, go to letembe.com, and um, I would be happy to help anybody that I possibly could in, into getting bees and not paying for them and, and to making it a sustainable thing. It can be profitable uh, because if you're not doing this profitably and getting some kind of reward out of it, uh, and with bees it's honey, I question why you're doing it because it can be done. It has been done for thousands of years, and, and anybody can do it out there too. And what kind of production, just as we finish up here, do you see out of your average hive once established and if it's healthy and doing well a year? Well, well, uh, see, I'm working on that, and, and my average hive is kind of strange because I run a lot of experiments. So I've got a lot of hives that are doing different things, and I can't tell if it's because of what I'm doing to them or if it's just that hive of bees. Uh, I have had bees, uh, well, like this year. I've, I've, I had three or four hives that made four to five supers, Langstroth medium supers apiece, uh, I had a lot of them that made three apiece, and then some that didn't make any. The average that that came out was was about 64 pounds, which really is not me. that great for here. But I'm not okay. feeding, I'm not treating, I'm not having any of those expenses, and I'm not buying any bees. Yeah, that's that's a lot of honey, um, um, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I don't know if that's a good yield for a commercial beekeeper. I look at that, and you said 64 pounds. Well, in, a, in an average batch of mead, okay, I use about 12 pounds of honey, right? So that's, that's quite – an average batch is a five-gallon batch of mead. I don't know if you've ever looked at the price of a handcrafted, like, you know, niche market bottle of, of mead, but, you know, generally you're going to have 25 bucks a bottle uh, for a standard wine-sized bottle. So to me, that's a return of investment because I don't need much else other than honey and water and some yeast to make a damn fine mead. And, and that's my big motivation because every time I make uh, a batch of mead and I, I dump 12 to 14 pounds of honey in it, that hits the back pocket pretty hard. Oh, I, I totally agree. Actually, I my recipe, I just got done making a, a, a barrel of mead, and I used 60, 60 pounds, which is a five-gallon okay. bucket. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that does. I could have sold that, but yeah. man, I'm doing this for me, too. I, this, oh, no, <laughs> I, I'm not selling my mead. I have, to get, I have to go through the state and ask them and all. I, 
I have plans for doing things like that. Um, uh, I've never done a casked mead, but you say barrel, and that's what I start thinking, like an old French cask or something, French oak cask. Uh, and it just seems like a natural fit, especially with all the blackberries we have in the state. A blackberry cask mead would probably be awesome. I do think we need to wrap there, though, because we'll go into a whole new show if we start talking about mead. Uh, if you're a mead maker, maybe we'll have you back on someday to talk, talk just about that. Oh, that'd be great. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us today and uh, and bringing this subject to us because I think it's something that maybe will get actually more people involved because if you can do it more economically, it's easier to justify doing it at all. Um, so I appreciate you, Jason. Well, thank you, Jack. You have a great day. Well, man, again, thanks for being on the show. And uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Jason Bruns helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is